Well, we are going to be in Daniel this morning now. I'm praying that my, uh, my iPad doesn't crash my app today. So I got my extra notes here. And we did start putting, um, you know, about 10 years ago, we had Bibles underneath the chairs. And we started putting them back there uh, after last week's fiasco. Um, and then we had somebody starting, uh, started renting from us, and they used a different Bible, and ours were getting trashed. So we put ours in the back. So now we're putting them back underneath the chairs. So if you need to grab one, grab one. We're going to be in Daniel 2.31. And you might want to mark Isaiah 44, because we're going to head there also. So you might, uh, well, I mean, you might remember that King Nebuchadnezzar is, is, it's 602 BC, and he's had a terrible dream, and as we've been going through the book of Daniel, uh, we've been talking about this. And his servant Daniel, who is a godly young man, about 19 years of age, was on the chopping block. Literally, the king was going to kill him along with all the other people who couldn't interpret the dream, but he didn't get a chance. And he said, give me a chance. So he gets in front of the king and says, give me the night, and God will reveal it to me. And, of course, God does. And uh, he not only tells him the dream, he also tells him the interpretation, and that's what we get to today. And Daniel's going to tell him that dream and tell him the interpretation, and he's going to like it. So uh, let's get into it. It says uh, in verse 31, you, you looked, O king. And there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest of arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, uh, was cut out but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time, and it became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now, I would have loved to have been there. I would have loved to have been there to see Nebuchadnezzar's face when Daniel nails the dream. Because, I mean, what a wild dream this is. I mean, uh, should I interpret anybody's dream from last night? I mean, how hard would that be to interpret somebody's dream? And to come out and say, this was your dream. And to tell such a wild dream. You know, Daniel, you notice Daniel doesn't go, hey, King, King, did I get it right? Huh? What do you think? You know, he doesn't do that at all. You know, now almost the whole Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And here it switches to Aramaic, the king's language, as if God is saying, I'm not speaking to the sons of Israel right now. I'm speaking directly to the whole world in this regard. And to Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, the dream represents a future prophecy, prophecy that we're now living in. For Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, the head represents the now. In other words, what they're dealing with right then. We look back into world history and we start to see the different pieces of this dream. But for them, it's right then. And they don't know what's going to happen. You know, and it's like this for us. The feet and the toes of the statue, that's where we live. We don't know exactly what it means. Just like the whole statue for them. They didn't understand all this stuff. He goes on in verse 36 and says... This was the dream, and now we have to interpret it to the king. 
You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the airs. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to you. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. And finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw the feet and the toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be the divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. And the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. Verse 43 is, is just uh, as you saw iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be mixed and will not remain united. <laughs> Sound like today? Yeah. Anymore, the iron, uh, that iron mixes with clay. Uh, in the time of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will in itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock that cut out of the mountain, not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and, uh, uh, true and the interpretation is trustworthy. Now, I know that was a lot of scripture, but I wanted to read the whole thing to, to get the broad picture of what's going on here. So Nebuchadnezzar's dream covers a panoramic view of Gentile history. And, and here's kind of a representation of, of what that statue might look like, you know, and it has the different levels on there. Just thought I'd throw that up there just for the heck of it. But the rise and fall of kingdoms starting in 602 BC and leading up to sometime after this morning, okay? So we're talking about the totality of history from that time until now. And the statue begins with a golden head and, and, and Moses or, or moves down to the, to the silver, the bronze, and the iron and ends with uh, mixed clay. And as the material moves down the statue, they decrease in value but increase in brute strength. It is a trade-off so like a trade-off is happening from the empires that evolve to, to, you know, they trade beauty for strength. You know, and, and to say, hey, beauty is great, but what you really need here is strength. And you build upon strength until you get to the feet. And then the iron mixes with the clay. And the clay represents weakness. Now, I hope I have not lost you a little bit here. We're going to go through some of this. But you have the strength mixed with the weakness and the term feet of clay that we use today. Have you ever heard that term feet of clay? That goes back to the scripture right here. That's when it's been used to. Most people don't realize it references Daniel 2. So in verse 37, Daniel tells the king, You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he's placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler, uh, ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar would have loved this. Wait, wait. 
Repeat that again. Did, did you say I would? I? I'm the head of gold? I have dominion over everything? I mean, you would like that. And he's like, oh, I like this interpretation. Now, the, the Aramaic word for gold is the word shimmer. And Babylon shimmers. It's a beautiful gold, you know. In fact, Babylon was called the, uh, the golden city by, by many other people around the world during this time. There was more gold in public buildings and temples and everywhere else than any other city in the world at this point. And Babylon was huge. I mean, think about this. The outer walls of Babylon were 56 miles Okay, now we think no big deal. We just, 56 miles. I mean, I did a little further than Bakersfield, 56 miles, you know. But I mean, make a circle, so a little smaller. But back then, that was huge. That was huge, a protection area for all the people. Somebody comes attack, everybody comes inside the gates, inside the walls, right? This is a, a huge, this is 200 square miles of wealthy excess that was going on. So Babylonian was, was a shimmering superpower of the 600 B.C. Now, when we start using the words like superpower, it kind of brings it home, doesn't it? A little bit. We throw around that word, you know, who's the superpower of today, you know, and all that. I say we are the superpower, but eventually that is going to change. We're kind of maybe seeing that right now. I'm not really sure. But eventually our country will not be the superpower. Now, how do I know this? Am I some prophet? Well, a prophet, when it comes to reading God's word and, and dividing it out for you, that kind of prophet, maybe, but I'm not a futuristic prophet, okay? But I know the word of God, and I know the word of God doesn't mention the United States at all. You go and read Revelations, do you see the United States in there at all? I haven't seen it. So either we're gone as a country, or we're so irrelevant, like it doesn't matter. Now, Britain, during World War II, were they relevant Somebody. Do you know history at all? I know Gary does. Yeah, Britain was relevant in World War II, right? They were the standard bearer. They were the holding off of the Nazis, right? Today, is Britain as relevant as it was back in World War II? No. We're like, oh, the queen. Maybe not. Maybe it's just me, you know. We get all excited about the, the new king and queen that eventually would take over when she passes away, you know, the matriarch or the family and all that, but we don't talk about them as a superpower. So, so uh, I think either the United States is gone or we've become irrelevant a lot like Britain is today. That's just a logical conclusion of reading the scripture. But go on, verse 39. It's, oh, let me go back. There we go. It says, after you, another kingdom will rise inferior to you. So Nebuchadnezzar rules from 605 to 562. So B.C., we go backwards, okay? We count down. So his sons and other rule, others rule until 539 B.C., and then Babylonian is conquered, first by the Medes and then by the Persians. History puts these two together, the Medo-Persian Empire. And I'm sorry if I'm sounding like a history uh, class lesson here, but, but we have to go through it. I mean, we, it, it, it's Scripture, but history tells us that Silas, uh, Cyrus the Great conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. And Isaiah talks about Cyrus in Isaiah 44. And if you're awake, so let's waken ourselves up, shake our heads, get ourselves into this. If we're awake and we're paying attention, this is going to blow your doors off, okay? Verse 24 of Isaiah 44. 
This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer, who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, almost like it's a hobby, who carries out the words of of the servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited, of the town of Judah, they shall be built, and of the ruins, I will restore them, who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will stay, say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Now, who is Cyrus again? He's the Medes and the Persians, okay? He's, the, the, he's not a godly guy. He's not a follower of God, but he, God refers to him as if Cyrus is on his team. He goes, I'm going to use Cyrus. This is why I have him in power. This is why I place him there at that particular time. And going on in, in chapter 45, this is what the Lord says to the anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take to hold, uh, take a hold of to subdue nations before him and strip kings of their armor. He's like, I'm going to totally bless this guy, this ungodly guy I'm going to bless, to open the doors before him so the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you treasures of the darkness, riches stored, riches stored in the secret places, so that, you may, uh, so that you may know that I am Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, of my servant, of Israel my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you did not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other apart from me. There is no God. Now, this is a powerful statement that God makes through Isaiah. That God is going to use a pagan king to accomplish his purposes. This is amazing to me about God. That God would use ungodly people. Have we seen that at all? Do we see that in politics at all? Is there any ungodly people in politics? I mean, if you can find one and tell me, oh, wait, they all, you know what I'm saying? I mean, God uses ungodly people for his, his purpose, and this amazes me. He can use people who are not serving him, who don't recognize him, or have never said his name out loud in a respectful way. I'm sure they've used the names in unrespectful ways. Now, that is not the part that will blow your doors off. Even though it sort of does, that is not. That's just the prelude to this. Here's what got me this week. Isaiah 44 and 45 was written in 700 BC. Now remember, we're counting backwards, right? Now Daniel is in 600 BC. They still have a ways to go before the Medes and Persians get together and conquer everybody. Think about this. 150 years before a man named Cyrus was there. Before the Medes and the Persians ever come to power. Are you tracking with me at all? Before Cyrus is even born, before Cyrus's parents are even born, before his grandparents are even born, in fact, probably even before his great-grandparents 
were born, he says, I have this child picked out. From my mother's womb, as we sang earlier, you have chosen me. God chose Cyrus for this. And he was born. And Cyrus wasn't even the top 100 names of the name book. You know what I'm saying? Okay, I threw that in there just as a joke, but I guess <laughs> no one got that. But it's amazing to me that God knew what I would name my child and my children 150 years ago. That my wife and I would toss names back and forth, and people kept bugging us when we were having our first child. What are you going to name them? What are you going to name them? Because we just can't keep calling it it, you know, or the boy. What are you going to name them? And we waited and waited and waited, and we finally came up with the name Brandon Josiah, and that's what we named our, our firstborn. And then God knew that we would adopt a second child, and we would name him Grayson Daniel from day one. But God knew that way back when. God knows these things. Then God says that Cyrus would release the Jews that were captive. Now, except the problem is when, when Isaiah wrote this, there were no captives. The Jews weren't living in captivity. Isaiah says that he would release them and that they, he would allow them to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. They must have thought Isaiah was just nuts. You know what I'm saying? I mean, let's think about it like this. Imagine you're on Facebook or Twitter or TikTok or whatever the younger ones are using. I don't know. I'm an old fogey. I still use Facebook here and there, you know. But imagine some, some guy says, behold, from the Caribbean comes Dan, okay, or whoever. Put, put a name in there. And he will restore the ruins of California. And you go, what do you mean the ruins of California? I mean, this is California. Well, okay, we're starting to see the ruins of California happen, but that's a whole other thing. But, but, I mean, that's basically what happened with Isaiah. You know, he said some guy's going to be born and God's going to use him and he's going to do this, this, and this. So we, as we study the book of Daniel, one of the things that we see over and over and over is this. Our God is a sovereign God. What does that mean? It means he's in control. He's always in control. Now, if you read the news or watch the news or see it on your phone or however you see the news, hopefully you watch it every now and then. Don't get sucked too much into it. But they will tell you the world's out of control, won't they? Well, while the world's out of control, God is still in control. And we need to remember that. He will always be in control. There are powerful people who feel like they are in control. They are in charge. But guess what? They're not. And this is what God's saying to King Nebuchadnezzar. You think you're in control, but later you won't be. And this is a very important message for anyone who has any power. Because you need to hear this. Nebuchadnezzar is dead and God, uh, gone, and God's word lives forever and ever. Each one of us pass away. The power we think we have, we need to understand this is the same today as it was back then. For any person who has a power over at least one other person. Now, who, who here has power over one other person? Okay, all the wives, raise your hand. Okay, I'm just... <laughs> sorry, I had to throw that in there. But if you're a parent... Or if you're a boss or anything like that, you're in any authority, you have 
power over another person. Now, parents, if you don't raise your hand, that means the children are in charge, and that's scary. So I'll just leave that there. But here's what God is saying. If you are powerful, you will not be powerful forever. So be aware of that and be humbled by that and act like it so everyone knows that you get it. And it reflects on how you treat people. It reflects on the decisions that you make. So after Nebuchadnezzar leaves, we have Darius. And here's a relief of Darius. It's in the British Museum, the, the one on the left. But Darius comes in the power, and Darius is of the Persians. And after Darius, there's a third kingdom of bronze, and this is Alexander the Great. Darius thinks he, he, uh, he can conquer the Greeks, and it's a mistake. So Alexander the Great, as a, as a young man, comes in and defeats not only the Medes, but the Persians, but the rest of the world also, and at the age of 30 years of, old, uh, 30 years of, uh, of age. And you would think he would be happy. But history tells us, at least the history we think we can believe, tells us he actually went into depression. And it's recorded that he screamed at his commanders, give me another world to conquer. He loved a battle. So he starts to drink. And then one night, he, on his way home from a party in the freezing rain, he catches pneumonia and dies shortly afterward. His empire goes on for another 270 years. God is in charge. Then in verse 40, it says, Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Now, I don't know how much you know about history or like history, or if you're totally ignoring me because this is all historical here, but the Roman legion dominated everything and everyone. They would either starve you out, wait you out, smoke you out, or just knock down the walls and overpower you. They, they didn't take no for an answer. They just went for it. And they used this iron sword called the Roman short sword for urban warfare. It was very effective. The Roman government was passionate about starting Roman colonies, and the Senate would often vote to go to war to keep the soldiers out of town so they could stay in charge. Because as long as the, the ones that had the swords were gone, then we can do our stuff. Just keep them busy. So you have the Greeks who co cooperated with them and assimilated as one example. And the Hebrews who did not assimilate as the other example of what happened during that time. And you can see what Isaiah was talking about when you looked at what, if you look at what happened to the world. The iron has come down and it's mixed with the clay. Uh, I mean, uh, Dan, what Daniel was talking about. It mixed with the clay. European and American has so many Roman influences, okay? So now you have the two statue legs. We'll get to that in a second. As the Roman Empire is divided, uh, divided into two divisions, east and west, this wasn't planned. It came because of religious and political differences. The west became under the control of Rome and the east uh, you know, uh, under the control of Constantinople, which used to be called Istanbul. Does no one know the song? Come on, people. So the East becomes, uh, you know, the Byzantine Empire. You might remember that from your history class. 
and then went, to the, went north and east, all the way to Russia, even Alaska or Canada and California. And this reflects one of the legs. Now, the other leg represents the root of Rome. It represents Europe and Rome and Paris and all the nations that they like to colonize. The idea of, for them, the colonization was good. Either assimilate or we will kill you. This was the Roman way. Now, we do things the Roman way in America, right? In many ways, we do. We have a Senate. We're a republic. Everybody thinks we're a democracy. We're not. We're a republic. We have balance of power. At least we tell ourselves we have balance of power. We act like the Romans. We take over countries with iron. And I'm not trying to be anti-American, okay? I'm just fat. This is how we operate, okay? So I'm not trying to, you know, you know, what is our national symbol? The eagle, right? Where did we get that from? Rome. It goes all the way back to Roman times. That's our national symbol. Now, Europe and, and the Soviet Union, you can also see the Roman influence. And, and the point I'm making here is the legs kind of merge into the feet it's not like an, a, an abrupt change like before. It mixes the iron with the clay. You have the Holy Roman Empire, small groups of, of relatives in charge, and the seat of power that moves around for a while, and then it lands in Germany for a while, and the rulers call the, the Kaisers. Kaiser is a German word for what? Caesar. Okay? You have the Roman influence. The Russian word for czars is, comes from what word? Caesar, okay? So you, have the, you see how the Roman iron just kind of blends into modern history. And if you're a student of modern history, you would note that both of these legs of the Roman Empire, both east and west, both of these empires ended in 1918. The Roman czars were overthrown and murdered by the Bolsheviks, and World War I ends with the, and the Kaisers are no more. I mean, you look back in 1918, I mean, the history of that year, it was huge. You also had the plague of 1918. In a 16-week period, not over two years, but a 16-week period, you had 550,000 people die in the United States alone. Okay. And that's the beginning of the feet. So you think about different metals of the statue, you see an abruptness of the metal until we get to the blending of the feet. Now, I've given you all this historical stuff to get to a point here. So verse 41, it goes on and says, Just as you saw the feet and the toes were partly baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some strength of iron in it. Even as you saw iron mixed with clay... As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. So you have something going on in world history at this point. And I, I truly believe that we're at that feet part. You have iron mixed with clay. Iron represents brute force, right? What does clay represent? Human beings. It's of the earth, the dust, okay? So you have the brute force 
mixing with the role of human beings. And I believe, and many other scholars believe, that this means democracy, where you have this mixing, the human democracy in, in a ruling way, and it never really mixes well. So you will see the clay and you will see the iron. It's not a natural mix. It's not like taking something and baking it and you've mixed it all together and you put it in the oven and it comes out. No, this is when you take those, those different color brownies or different color cakes and mix them together and you don't quite mix it and you put it in the oven. Do you know what I'm talking about? Any bakers out there? Any eaters out there? Okay. You know, it's not a natural mix. You have the military, and you have the financial strength. You have the iron, and then you have democracy and voting, and that involves fighting the big guy. Everyone has a voice, Every, you know, democracy. Now, when it comes to describing democracy, the statute seems to describe it as a, a relatively weak form of government. Now, we don't like that, do we? No one? Yes? No? We don't like that idea. I think democracy should be strong, right? That's how we kind of view it. But, but the Bible seems to be saying that it's not necessarily a bad form of government, but there's just an inherent weakness to it, which, you know, we would say that the voice of the people that, you know, that gives democracy strength, right? Well, I kind of beg to differ. There's a bit of truth to that. But what happens is the people are fickle, right? Do we have fickle people in the United States, you know? They vote for, for people they shouldn't be voting to, or, or they vote for laws that completely are just, you're, you're scratching your head, you know. I mean, this is a lame example, but let me throw out the time change that we're fixing to have. I mean, come on. How hard is it to vote, get back to one time, right? Instead of change, I mean, and they can't even do, you know. Ugh. Okay, I'll just breathe, right? Breathe. So let me tell you where my mind went with this this week, other than time change. Because this isn't even the real point of Daniel. The point to Nebuchadnezzar was about a big rock coming and smashing it up. But since we live in the feet and the drink, uh, the drink, the feet uh, and the toes, and I think it's an important error because it relates to us, democracy only really works when everybody speaks up. It doesn't work well when only, you know, the wealthy speak up, does it? Because the wealthy do what the wealthy wants to do. Unless you have money, right? Then you're fine, you know. But if you don't have money, you can't get a politician on the phone, right? You say, well, I beg to differ. Well, you, you call up Nancy this afternoon. You call up President Biden. You call up Mitch McConnell. You know, you try to get them on the phone. This is a struggle for them. They can't listen to every person, so they tend to listen to the groups that help them stay in office, right? And this is very frustrating, because in order to maintain power, they have to compromise. It has to be a win-win situation for everyone. But really, is it ever a win-win situation? Usually, it's a lose-lose situation. Every compromise they make to, you know, moves you away from the person that you really want to be. And every time you do it, the Bible calls it what? When we compromise our lives. The Bible calls it sin. And compromise does not work well with the Christian life. This is why the feet are weak. It is a weakness of democracy. You have a, a mixture of people and iron. You mix of money and the people they serve. 
It is not a democracy that made America great. It's something else that made America great. Now, I hate to use that term today because somebody has usurped that term, and it shouldn't be. It's like the rainbow. It's been taken over. We need to take things back. What makes a nation great is righteousness. That's what makes a nation great. Righteousness is what made America great, and there are times when we've gotten it right. Even today, we still get some things right, but when a country falters and starts to stumble, they start to lose their superpower status, and the Lord participates in this all the time. He knows what's going to happen. So what do we do with this instead of just agreeing with it or disagreeing with it, depending on how you view me? Well, in Matthew, we're called to be a salt to a society. What does salt do? Well, it makes things tasty, right? But it also preserves. Back when they didn't have refrigerators, you couldn't keep meat unless you salted it. It was a preservative. So think about all the salt intake that you could have if you lived in a different time. So, you know. But some of the things that we're called to do is get involved and stay involved in issues that involve righteousness. If you're leaning more Republican than Democrat, different things come to mind. If, you're, you know, if you lean more green, different things come to mind. If you lean toward Democrat, different things come to mind. If you're kind of non-political, then you're not even thinking. I mean, you know. But in every group of people, you have some great people. Now, some of you would disagree with me on that. I'm sorry, that's how I feel. In every group, you have some great people. And, and, you know, within all these groups, there are people working on causes that have to do with biblical righteousness. So the deal is, we shouldn't say, every Christian should be this because of this reason. What should happen is, we should find the righteous causes, which is the framework on, on what we could feel good about working on and get out there and work on that. Sometimes that means just writing a check. Other times that means getting your hands into it. But as Christians, I think it's important not to look to others and say, wow, my cause is more important than your cause, so therefore you need to believe in what I believe in. I think it's a waste of time to argue politics. It's a waste of time to you know, argue Republican, Tea Party, Democrat, Libertarian, any other words you want to get in there, because you're not going to change somebody else's mind. You're just not. So it's a waste of time. What you ought to be doing in a church is saying, what righteous cause can I get involved with and team up with you, and we can narrow it down to one or two and get involved with, and then you can become the salt into a declining society. That's why when we go on the Philippines mission trip, we don't ask, what's your political bent? No, that's a righteous cause. Let's go out there and let's do this. There's other multiple things that you can get involved in. The scriptures say righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is the disgrace to any people. I like the words of the motto of the state of Hawaii. A nation that we happen, you know, that we kind (laughs) of happen to take over with iron. In other words, financially and politically, we just kind of roll right over Hawaii. But their, their motto is this, the life of the lamb land is preserved in righteousness. 
That's a great motto. That's a Christian motto there. And I happen to know another person who wrote that model happened to be a Christian ruler in Hawaii when it was founded as a state. Well, the final piece of the dream comes out of verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor be left to another people. It will crush all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain. In other words, usually represents kingdoms here but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. And if you Google this picture, uh, most of the time the, the picture that I showed you, the statue, will have a big rock setting next to it, um, you know, bowling ball-sized rock next to him. But, but this translates means to pulverize, okay? So it's not just like this little bitty rock. It's a huge thing that comes down and nails it. So the new kingdom will come down and destroy it all. Now, for many, this makes us worry. But we need to not worry. Why do we not worry? We're part of Christ. Too many of us are worrying about political things. Too many of us are worrying about certain different things in our lives and so forth. We are part of Christ, so don't worry about this, about the when and the how and the who when you watch the news. It's good to study, but not to the point where it makes us afraid because God takes care of his remnant. God takes care of his people. Imagine how Daniel felt. He doesn't know how the king's going to react. I mean, the gold part, no big deal. The king likes that. But the rest of it, I'm not so sure. But then Psalms 118, Jesus uh, quotes Psalms 118 in Matthew 21. Jesus talks about himself through the psalmist. He says in verse 42, Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders reject has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. You know, it's a very interesting concept because American Christians today are totally rejecting this aspect of God. We're reinventing God into this loving, non-crushing, feel-good, I-can-be-anything-I-want-to-be because God is love, God. Because we don't like the other side that is God. And this is wrong. God didn't ask us to do this. Sometimes we complain to God like like Job did. And and we know the answer uh, was to Job. God answered Job basically and said, who do you think you are to talk to me like this? I think every parent has said that at one point or another, right? God said that to Job. In Isaiah 28, 16, it says, See, I lay a, a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for the sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. The reality is that we should read the Bible enough And hang out with believing people enough so we have a good concept of who the real God is. And then we accept him for who he really is. Because guess what? Our lives are messy, aren't they? Relationships are messy. 
but we have to rely on God. We have to put it in God's hands. And we have to see how God deals with messiness because grace is also messy. And what I mean that is when somebody offends you and you have to turn around and God says, whoa, 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 Alan, wait, wait, wait. Give him a little bit of grace. But God, come on, did you see? And God goes, no, 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 Alan, 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 stop. Give them a little bit of grace. But God, and he goes, who do you think you are talking to me like this? What have I been giving you? I've given you grace, so give them the grace. See, the real God is the God of justice. And the first time he came, he allowed us as humans to treat him like he meant nothing. And we killed him on a cross. But the next time he comes, it's not going to be like that. He will come as a warrior and a rock out of a, out of a mountain. And he will obliterate the world kingdoms and set up a long-lasting kingdom. See, our part in all of this is to make sure that we are in Christ. Before the rock hits the statue. And people say, well, Alan, that can't be that simple. Well, yes, it is. Everyone that we love in Christ before the rock. Well, how much time do I have? I don't know. People say, well, you know, I've read the scriptures. The temple has to be rebuilt. I heard that that hasn't, you know, it has to happen first. Well, did you know all the components are ready to be put up? Did you know the temple that has to be rebuilt doesn't have to be brick walls? That can happen within a matter of days. It's all in a warehouse waiting. The reality is it would be foolish to wait around because the Bible is clear that the Christ will return and we do not know the date or the time. So my question is to you is, are you in Christ? Have you received Christ? Have you believed in the name and the power of Jesus Christ? Because if you haven't, it doesn't matter how much knowledge that you gain from today's lesson that you've been either listening to or ignoring. It doesn't really matter. Unless you know Christ. So what happened in Nebuchadnezzar in verse 46? The king Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. Now it's ironic, he's focusing on the man. I don't know why Daniel allows this. Verse 47 says, The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. <laughs> It's kind of ironic, he's calling him Daniel's God. He's not converted, okay? He's not a full believer. He's just saying to Daniel, your God is really cool. He's the God that, he's a revealer of mysteries, the scripture says, for you were able to reveal this mystery. And then verse 48, then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him rule over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all the wise men. And this is great for us to know because have you, do you know somebody who's just honest and just follows the Lord and then gets a promotion? Most of the time it's the opposite way, right? We honor the Lord, we follow the Lord, we do what's right, and we get overlooked. We don't get the promotion a lot of times. And we're so afraid to speak up sometimes about the truth because people see, may see it as disrespectful. But if you can do it in a respectful way, which uh, it allows reward and blessings. But sometimes as Christians, we just get pushed out of the way, don't we? 
Well, sometimes we don't. We see the right here in Scripture. Verse 49, moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, which Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Daniel eventually becomes chief judge, and his boys become leaders. And what's interesting is that Babylonians kind of believe themselves, kind of the mindset of the, what we could equate to as the Nazis. They believe they were the master race, and Nebuchadnezzar was the head of it. And here you have Babylon bowing down, Nebuchadnezzar bowing down before a Jew, which is pretty amazing. From being on death's doorstep, what time do you want to be killed tomorrow, to being bowed to by the king. This is what God does in one day's of work. If we allow ourselves to be in Christ, if we submit ourselves to his leadership and his authority, which means he takes over in our lives, then when you hit a rough patch, a rough situation this week, you understand that God is right there helping you. And as we learn from Daniel, we go to God, he reveals things to us, right? We go to God and we ask for his help, and he does some amazing, amazing things. Well, I've ran out of time, so let's pray. Lord, we just uh, love you so much. We, we, we understand that you're in control and in our minds, we understand that, and a lot of times it's hard to translate that to our hearts. I pray that in our hearts this week that we start to understand that you are totally in control, that you are in control of this world, you're in control of our country, you're in control of our state and our town, you're in control of our lives. And things go so much better for us, Lord, when we recognize that and we allow you to drive our life. I pray, Lord, that you teach us, gently teach us how to do that. That when we get scared about things, Lord, that we just reflect back on knowing that you are in charge. You chose us to have our names 150, 200, 1,000 years before we were born. We don't even know. But you knew us in our mother's wound. And if we recognize that, Lord, our lives would be so much better. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may he bless you this week in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.